Hannah, I understand that there's some sort of a contest that you've been running without our consent. It has been a highly competitive and top-notch field of Olympic-level competitors at terrible kidney puns. Matt? Actually, that does sound like something we'd be into. (laughs) (laughs) So on all three of our, um, you know, Kidney Neff Madness platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we have been uh, putting out a call for terrible puns uh, related to kidneys. um, And you, the listeners, have absolutely come through for us. So our first pun is from Dr. David Tardio, um, who's an internist who work, working for Johns Hopkins Community Physicians in Southern Maryland. Um, and he submitted to us via our Facebook page. So without any further ado... Hello, curbsiders. First of all, I wanted to thank you very much for an outstanding and informative podcast. It's a great combination of knowledge, food, and humor. Yes, Paul, I listened to the entire podcast. I do not skip over the beginning. My kidney pun is as follows. What do you call an old kidney? A has-been. Bada-boom. <laughs> Thanks very much again for everything. You all take care. Uh, a has-been. Okay. I like that one. Yes. I'll give that, uh, Paul, I'll give that uh, five hotcakes. Oh, <laughs> God, I don't know what sins I'm being punished for. <laughs> this is the worst day of my life. Stuart, how many, what is going on? Stuart, how many, how many hot give that one you give that one, Stuart? I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a five out of ten. Okay. Because it's, it's, no, it's, it's too it's obvious. Six, six hot cakes in a full stack. So you can, there's, you're no. giving it, so you're giving it uh Three. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Half a stack. It's a real okay. thing. Entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Stuart. Thank you for joining me. And, uh, you know, let's just jump right into it and have Paul start to scold the audience because I know that he just can't wait to do that. Well, I can't even tell us what the show is. We are are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also get to know our guests up top. (laughs) This is one of those weeks where I feel bad for telling people that there's darkness behind their eyes. They skip ahead or they're lesser human beings. (laughs) I'm uh, so... Yeah, you can always skip ahead if you want to. I, this week, I won't think less of you, um, but don't. Uh, but if you want to, just look to the show notes for the timestamps. I'm pretty confused. <laughs> this is the first of uh, many episodes that we're going to be doing for Neff Madness. Of course, this month is Neff Madness, and we at the Curbsiders will be basically converting the entire show to Neff Madness for the next several weeks, which is going to be awesome. And uh, this first episode here, we we did a long recording session where we're going to split it into two episodes. The first episode that you're about to hear is going to be the Fluid Wars, where we're going to talk about lactated ringers, normal saline, the science, the physiology behind it, and then we're going to give our picks for which fluid we think you should be using. The second episode is about PRN medications for hypertension. Specifically, we... Uh, 
We dump on IV hydralazine a little bit, and then we also talk about perioperative use of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. We have three fantastic guests. Of course, you know we have to have our chief of nephrology, Dr. Joel Toff. He is a regular on the show, and now he tells me this is his seventh appearance, and I think he's got to be right. Uh... We, we joked on prior episodes about the smoking jacket like they had on uh, the old SNL show, The Five Timers Club. So Joel definitely is owed a smoking jacket at this point. And uh, we should just make curbsider smoking jackets because uh, it'll be it'll be great. Anyway. So like hotcakes. Yeah. yeah. The demand is huge. <laughs> so uh, Joel Toff, I'm getting off track here. Uh, this He's been on seven episodes, hypertension, hyponatremia, CKD, acid base, RTA, hyperkalemia, and now the Neff Madness episode here. He is our chief of nephrology at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. He's better known as his much cooler and more intelligent online alter ego, Kidney Boy, or at Kidney underscore boy, where you can find him on Twitter, where he employs his innovative medical education to teach nephrology. He is the co-creator of Neff JC and Neff Madness. In 2017, he won the Robert Narens Award for the ASN. His day job is as a clinical nephrologist at the teaching hospital where he teaches medical students from Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine, Wayne State University, St. George's, American University of the Caribbean, and Central Michigan University. He also teaches residents and nephrology fellows at St. John's Ascension in Detroit. Our next guest, Pascal Carula, is a second-year nephrology fellow at Columbia University Medical Center. She completed medical school at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon and residency at Duke University Medical Center. Pascal is an editorial intern at AJKD, the American Journal of Kidney Diseases, and she did a fantastic job writing up the hospitalist region for Neff Madness. So she's kind of our go-to person for this episode, kind of explaining all the topics. Our third guest and final guest is Charlie Ray. He is an assistant professor of medicine at UCSF and the San Francisco VA Medical Center. He completed medical school at Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine, residency in internal medicine at Loma Linda University Medical Center, and a hospital medicine research fellowship at the University of Chicago. Dr. Ray's research interests focus on care fragmentation in the hospital setting, overutilization of hospital resources, and more recently on the effects of social risk factors on health outcomes within the VA health system. Dr. Ray is also a digital media editor for the Journal of Hospital Medicine and the director of the JHM Editorial Fellowship. When not fulfilling these other duties, Dr. Ray can often be found tweeting at Ray Charles, W-R-A-Y Charles, or trying to keep up with his two young boys. So without further ado, here is part one of two great episodes on Neff Madness. It's great. Oh, man, I'm so proud of you. That was spectacular. Yeah, you did great. Good Thank job. Thank you, Paul. Stuart, I've no. I've got a joke for you. Nothing? I got a, no, I've got a joke. Okay, what's so, the joke? All right, so three doctors all make an appointment to go see their PCM, an internist, a pediatrician, and an orthopedist. After several hours waiting to be seen, the physicians all get upset and leave one at a time. Who's the last to leave? The pediatrician? No, the PCM, because that day he was the only one with patience. <laughs> I think we should get into it, so we'll start recording now for real. We have multiple guests, so we're going to go around the horn and do one-liners. And let's start with our esteemed chief of nephrology, Dr. Joel Toff. I think people know who you are, but Joel, did you want to give a one-liner? 
I'm Joel Toff. I'm a 49-year-old uh, Caucasian male. I'm a uh, attending nephrologist, and I spend way too much of my time on Twitter, uh, where I play the character Kidney Boy. Uh, I spend a lot of time developing uh, mm. the uh, Twitter online journal club NefJC, and I'm the co-creator of Nef Madness. That's right, and I think I think most people most people know who you are. If they don't, they should follow you on Twitter. Give a cape. This is my seventh appearance on the Curbside. <laughs> wow, wow. Oh my gosh. You get a medal yeah. for that? Oh. Crazy. All right. This is my first. So I'm a 30 year old female, um, born and raised, spent my first 25 years of my life in Lebanon and moved here four years ago now. Um, so I'm a second year nephrology fellow at Columbia. And me and my husband, we just spend our time exploring New York. And this is really when I want to have a kid so I can make some funny joke about the kid, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you just follow in Paul's footsteps. You you have so much freedom right now and you're living in a great city. Just just yeah. enjoy it, you know, enjoy it when you don't always have to account for like one or multiple other people uh, at all times. It's it's nice. I like the plan of having a kid for the jokes. I think that's the right <laughs> That's why I had my kids. <laughs> Charlie, why don't you give us your one-liner? Yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm Charlie Ray. I'm an academic hospitalist um, at uh, UCSF and the San Francisco VA Medical Center. Uh, excited to be here. Um, when I'm not goofing off on Twitter, similar to Joel, um, uh, I do uh, health services research, um, and I'm also directing the new JHM editorial fellowship. So if there's anybody out there looking to sort of uh, increase their chops about uh, on academic writing, reach out to me. And what is JHM? Oh, uh, yeah. Great question, Joel. Uh, the Journal of Hospital Medicine. I, I guarantee you there are some people listening that are interested. Um, that was an organic plug. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. It kind of, you know, I, As I was going through it, I was like, am I just plugging this thing? <laughs> All right, we we have a lot of material to get to, so I think maybe we can just go around. We got to get some kind of advice. I'll give you a choice. Uh, Joel, we'll start with you. How about either a book recommendation or some advice that you want to give to the audience? Or or maybe you can recommend whatever you want. You're the chief who, you know, recommend anything. Uh, I would I would recommend uh, following uh, Neff Madness on Twitter. That uh, this is a it's a Twitter handle that's going to keep you up to date on all of the uh, shenanigans that are going to go on in the uh, latter half of the month month of March. That should be a lot of fun. A lot of trash talking as well. Yeah. So if if you're not if you're not familiar, uh, Neff Madness is a it's it's a seventh year that we've been doing this. We started it in 2013. It's an online educational game that plays out over social media. We take all the tropes of the NC2A uh, basketball tournament March Madness and we apply them to medical education and nephrology. We're going to have 32 nephrology concepts distributed over eight different academic regions all set up in a uh, single elimination brackets. We have people all over the world that are going to learn about these concepts and then pick their winners for every one of the matchups, all 31 of the matchups, kind of in the same way that you do with uh, ESPN or CBS Sports. And then the actual winners are picked by a blue ribbon panel of uh, nephrology leaders. And uh, the better your picks match their picks results in uh, fame, 
not so much fortune, but definitely, well, very limited fame. Uh, <laughs> additionally, if you're in the U.S., you can get CME and MOC credits uh, for this. And uh, one of the things that I'm really excited is tonight we're going to go, we're going to do a deep dive into one of those eight regions, the uh, hospitalist nephrology region. And, and, oh, I should recommend they all sign up as part of the curbsiders team. Yeah, you, you, you get to, if you're, you get to say if you're with an institution or part of a team. So our listeners should say they're part of the curbsiders team. I think that would be, uh, that would be good. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. We're going to have like 150 people. <laughs> Pascal, <laughs> did you want to give either uh, some sort of book recommendation or, um, or, or some advice that you found useful that you've gotten in your career? Um, advice for my career? I think, actually, um, now that we're talking about social media, I think I do want to give um, the people who are listening the advice of actually being on Twitter. Um, I, Did you hear that, Colonel? <laughs> so um, they probably already are since they're listening to a podcast. But um, <laughs> I worked with Matt Sparks for a while as a resident, and he kept trying to convince me to get onto Twitter, and I kept resisting, and I finally did it. And it's such a great community. I've met lots of people, and I'm actually here now because of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just full of trolls. Med Twitter, anyway, is not exactly. just full of trolls. It's not. That's right, Doctor. You need to sign up for Twitter now. Pascal, why don't you tell them what you're what you're doing with AJKD? Yes. Um, so AJKD started this um, AJKD editorial internship where um, they asked uh, fellows across the country um, who are like they actually like if you're interested in. Um, the editorial work and seeing what happens behind the scenes when you're submitting your work to a paper. I think um, that was a great um, opportunity that AJKD gave to fellows and uh, me and three other fellows um, are actually part of this um, one-year internship. We um, um, basically like we join probably a lot of their meetings, almost all of the meetings, we get to see what's submitted, we get to give our input, and we get to see like how uh, papers are chosen um, for publication, what reviewers are thinking about them, and actually we get the opportunity to review them um, ourselves as well. And through that, I was able to join um, Neff Madness and be part of the writing group for Neff Madness, and to meet Joel and a lot of other contributors. So it's been a great um, experience, highly recommended. I think, um, so Charlie's talking about the Journal of Hospital Medicine editorial internship. So definitely anyone who can be part of such an experience should definitely um, take advantage of it. Right. So if you are about to submit your paper to American Journal of Kidney Disease, you know who to bribe. (laughs) 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 All right, Charlie, same question to you. Did you have some sort of recommendation or some sort of advice for the audience? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go back to the book one. I actually like that one a lot because I I love sharing this with um uh with a lot of my trainees. One of the best books that I've read recently um that I love is Ending Medical Reversal um by Vinay Prasad and and Adam Sifu who of course are both uh very vocal on Twitter as well. Um but I think it's just a fantastic book that really sort of uh, causes people to sort of rethink um, medicine in a lot of ways um, and, and sort of inserts that critical mind into into our learners. Um, so I love that book. I've read it twice and I think I've given away two copies already. Um, so that's the book I'm pushing right now. 
Yeah. It's, it's I think it's left on Amazon. <laughs> okay, Stuart. Uh, Stuart, what's the? <laughs> it's uh, twenty two forty five. I think it's worth it. I I have a copy of the book. It's it is yeah. it is definitely eye opening, and uh, it and the thing they talk about in there is how like after something's disproven, it takes like a decade before it like is, is stopped being done. And I I mean. I'm constantly on wards or working with trainees and students and just like, no, that's, that's not a thing anymore. Like that's, we right. know that's wrong now and I'll show you why. And it's, right. it's hard because they, right. somewhere along the line they've heard or they've been, they've been taught the, the, you know, the old way. So yeah, that mm-hmm. book is great. Um, just last week I ran into a case of, uh, with renal dose dopamine. I thought that, that dragon uh-huh. had been slayed. <laughs> years ago. Like they're they're still, like, they're still preaching it in medical school. Oh <laughs> God. It's, you're, you're telling me it's not a thing. Mm. I'm telling you, it's not a thing. <laughs> I think that's one of the most useful things that we could do with the podcast is try to highlight practices that are no longer in favor or should no longer be in favor. Uh, we've tried to we've tried to do a fair amount of that in the past few years. All right, I th- I think we should get into some uh, let's do it some pertinent topics here. Uh, we've already described Neff Madness. Uh, we're going to do uh, a couple topics here, and this uh, probably will be split into two or three shows after the fact. The first topic is the fluid wars, and it uh, looks like this one is earmarked for Dr. Williams to to lead us into this. Oh, is it? Yeah. It seems like it actually, <laughs> it seems like the patient's name is Mr. Williams. I felt like this was his personal dig, but let's, let's we can talk about Mr. Williams. <laughs> He is a 69-year-old gentleman. He's being admitted for cough, fever, shortness of breath, and a diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Centaur would have something to say about that. The patient has been having trouble drinking fluids for the past couple of days. He has labs that demonstrate a mild acute kidney injury, thought to be secondary to volume depletion. And as a team, the ER intern and internal medicine intern look at the patient, look at each other, and then at the EHR, and they go through the list of options for volume resuscitation. And so I think we're going to start the conversation real, real broadly, and just what, what should be our goals of fluid resuscitation? Yeah, sure. So I think, so that we don't get into too much detail, but I think the goal of fluid resuscitation is basically to replenish some bodily fluid that has been lost, and the goal is to um, restore uh, tissue perfusion. And there's lots of ways we can measure that that restoration of tissue perfusion, um, but we don't need to go into that. But I think broadly, that's the goal. So how, Pascal, how are you making the choice uh, as a fellow? And then, of course, we're going to get get Joel and Charlie to weigh in this as well. But how, how do you make the choice? Like, are you always choosing the same fluid in general right now? Yes. After I wrote this Neff Madness, I've been choosing the same fluid um, right now, actually. I have to say before, um, like as a resident, I was more of a normal saline person, usually mm-hmm. choosing normal saline pretty Almost all the time, except in diarrheal cases where I wanted to replace the bicarb. Um, yeah, I didn't t- put much thought into it. And and choosing all that normal saline, did you ever run into any complications of no- that normal saline? Honestly, I may have um, run into the complications, but I never knew it. We probably just attributed some of these complications to how sick the patient is, um, their underlying disease, their septic shock. Um, all of that without really paying attention to the fluids. 
Right. And I think and I think that's absolutely everybody's experience that this is an innocuous decision and you don't get any feedback by making this decision that it may be good or may be bad. That the difference between choosing a balanced solution and a normal saline solution in the largest studies that have been done is really almost imperceptible. I mean, it is measurable, but barely. Mm-hmm. And um, and you can't expect anybody's personal experience to be able to reflect that. And this is just a, a, a classic case where you need to throw all the statistics at it to be able to see the difference between these two solutions because they're both they're both effective. Mm-hmm. And and as a lot of you guys know, Joel, you'll probably remember this, and a, a lot of you guys as well. Like when I was training, um, it was all the internist gave normal saline. And all the surgeons gave lactate and ringers <laughs> yep. at this point. Yep. Mm. And yep. I remember always going, what, what do those surgeons know about <laughs> fluid resuscitation? And, you know, they're they're all smart. But I always remember it being sort of this us versus them as to what sort of fluid we were using in these situations. Um, and like you, Pascal, for years and years and years, um, it's just been automatic you know, normal saline. And just as Joel's describing, it was, um, you don't get any feedback from that decision. And I think that's what's made this such an interesting and difficult topic to explore. Mm-hmm. Joel, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the background of this because I, you know, I had the same experience as Charlie and there, then it was always kind of in residency. And you, you get this question from trainees once in a while. They're like, what about, what about colloid? Like, let's give this person albumin instead of saline, instead of, uh, lactated ringers. Where, we were still using head of starch. Can you can you kind of give us a little bit of that background, and then we can kind of go into the crystalloid versus crystalloid solutions? Yeah. In 1998, there was a very impactful uh, systemic review that was published in Cochrane that looked at uh, albumin versus saline and showed increased mortality with the choice of uh, albumin solutions. And the hospitals I were at, I was at as a resident, absolutely freaked out and essentially banned the use of albumin except for in exceptional situations. Following that, there was a massive trial called the uh, SAFE trial, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think it's something like 5,000 patients that were randomized to either albumin or saline. And the Kaplan-Meier curves absolutely can be superimposed on each other. There's no difference in survival. Okay, and so at first blush, this was a win for colloids because the previous data, the systemic review had shown that colloids had increased mortality and there was clearly none of this toxicity that we're seeing. There was no signal that the colloids were harmful. But on the other hand, you got a drug that's way more expensive than salted water and it had no advantage at all. Uh, Additionally, if you take a look at the... um, the basic physiology, you would expect that you would need uh, about three times as much saline to get the same volume expansion as you would get with colloids. But when they actually did the math, it was only about a difference of about 30%. So even when you look at the physiology, just the colloids weren't stacking up like they should have been, and there was no survival uh, benefit from the drug. Uh, If you go into the sensitivity analysis, Couple of th- couple of signals emerge. One, the trauma patients did uh, significantly worse than this it, with colloids compared to saline, and this was attributed to the lower osmolality of the um, albumin solution, 
and a lower osmolality solution could cause cerebral expansion. And sure enough, if you look at where the mortality was, it was in the neurotrauma patients, Hmm. patients that had concussions. You didn't want to increase intracranial pressure. Using a lower osmolality solution would drive that up. The other signal on the other side was there was a not not significant but bordering on significance was an advantage in septic patients with albumin. However, in subsequent studies, to my eyes, that has not been borne out in trials like the FEAST trial and uh, additional studies that have looked uh, for advantages with uh, albumin. Charlie, tell me if you agree from the point of view me working now as a hospitalist, what I'm seeing from most people is albumin is is rarely a fluid we go to outside of the world of cirrhosis. We're, we're just not really going to cirro- uh, to albumin. Right. I, I would totally agree. Uh, I think I'm not quite sure the last time I even used um, an albumin solution outside of sort of a cirrhotic uh, who I'm, you know, trying to um, you know, resuscitate, you know, those sorts of patients. Um, and, you know, the other thing I remember even back in my training was, and Joel sort of touched on this, was even just the expense of the albumin. At this point in time, you know, you oftentimes even get a call from your pharmacist saying, what is the indication for this at this point in time? So you're starting to get pushback even at the systems level now, uh, if even if you tried to go down that pathway. But yeah, honestly, Stuart, I couldn't remember the last time, uh, or Matt, last time that I even used uh, 4% albumin for for a resuscitation. And I think I heard someone talk about head of starch, right? So head of starch <laughs> is a, no, it, it's a synthetic albumin. It's the, the attempt to get all the advantages of a colloid fluid without all the expense. And uh, these have had, uh, in, in repeated studies, uh, two primary problems. One, increased bleeding and the other one increased acute kidney injury. And um, we don't have a lot of, uh, of 1A redex- re- uh, recommendations in our KDGO guidelines, but we do have a, uh, I believe it's a, a 2B recommendation in um, uh, for uh, avoiding the use of uh, uh, synthetic colloids in acute kidney injury because of the recurrent, repeatedly demonstrated signal of acute kidney injury with these drugs. Yeah, you just got to give really dosed dopamine with it. <laughs> that, ought to, that ought to take care of the situation. Because if you can pair two placebos together, <laughs> Pascal, let's let's get us let's get us back on track to the the crystalloids. Can you tell us what are the crystalloids available? What's this? What is a balanced solution versus saline? Yeah, perfect. So um, when we're talking about crystalloids, it's basically just um, it's electrolytes mixed with water. And so we get to choose what electrolytes are in the water. And um, when we're talking about saline or 0.9% saline, that's basically um, sodium and chloride. Um, Nine grams, actually, of sodium chloride mixed uh, up to a liter and up to a liter of water. And um, obviously, it only contains sodium and chloride, um, which is not very similar to the plasma concentration, which can contain many other electrolytes. And so it's obviously not a balanced solution, if that makes sense. When we're talking about balanced solutions, we're then thinking of um, things like lactated ringers or plasmalite. Um, and these are um, contain sodium chloride, but also contain potassium. They contain some kind of 
a buffer such as um, lactate or acetate, and they usually contain also some some uh, degree of calcium and magnesium in them. And so they more closely resemble um, basically plasma. I have one um, thing to note is like no solution is actually 100% similar um, to plasma. They all um, really don't replace um, our plasma that well, but they're pretty like... But, but yeah, balanced crystalloids are definitely um, closer to the composition than normal saline. Can you talk a little bit about the the concern people have with lactate? Let's say it's a patient who already has elevated lactate, and now you're giving lactated ringers. That's something that's kind of out there. Like you shouldn't do that. Does that make any sense? Is there? A, does that hold water when you actually? Yeah, um, great question. I used to think the same. <laughs> so basically. Um, I mean, if you have a septic patient, a hypotensive patient, someone who's not perfusing their organs, then it's normal that they um, will shift into anaerobic glycolysis and will just be producing a lot of lactic acid, right? And um, lactic acid is bad, but what is lactic acid? It's basically just lactate and hydrogen ion. And What's harmful in that uh, molecule is actually the hydrogen ion. That's what's driving the acidosis, and that's what's driving all the complications from acidosis. So the lactate itself is just this accompanying anion, which really doesn't have um, side effects. And so when you're infusing someone with lactate, sure, you're giving them lactate, but the lactate in um, lactated ringers is actually sodium lactate, so it's not doesn't contain the hydrogen ion, it doesn't put you at risk for acidosis. Um, I think one thing to really be careful about um, this, though, is if you have a patient with cirrhosis, then um, they cannot convert this lactate very quickly. So 60% of lactate metabolism occurs in their liver, and so that will definitely be impaired. So you're giving someone um, lactated ringers, you're giving them lactate, their lactate will go up, this doesn't necessarily mean, this doesn't mean at all that, that that something bad is happening. But when we are measuring lactic acid, what we are measuring or what the lab is measuring is actually lactate. So um, you can have a sick patient who's now perfusing their kidneys very well because you've adequately resuscitated them with lactated ringers, but their lactate is still high because of all the lactate you gave in LR. And so people should just be cautious about it and realize that it's not under perfusion. It's just lactate accumulating and that it's not harmful. I I just love that. I I had never heard that before. Um, I was reading, you know, the the what you wrote for Neff Madness and I and I just I we had to talk about that. Fascinating. Paul Williams, you knew that, right? Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> I was just waiting for someone to say it. I'm glad I didn't have to jump in. That would have been embarrassing for all parties. <laughs> so the other issue with LR that is sometimes brought up as a relative contraindication is uh, is hyperkalemia, that a normal saline doesn't have any potassium in it, and LR has about four uh, millimoles per liter of potassium. And the intuitive thought is that uh, if the patient has hyperkalemia, don't give them the fluid with more potassium. Um, right. It's, you know, it seems banal. Uh, However, there's been a couple of studies that have looked at this and, um, the studies actually go the other way. 
that uh, the thought is that the metabolic acidosis that you produce with the normal saline causes an intracellular shift and you get potassium moving out of the cells. And the studies have actually shown more hyperkalemia with normal saline than with the balanced solutions. My one hesitation with that data is it's weird that all the studies that have done that have been in kidney transplant patients, which is not kind of your typical story. And it makes me a little worried that it may not be applicable to everybody. Uh, so I'm a little I'm a little skeptical of the data, but that's the data we've got. Okay. So jury, jury's still out on that one um, in patients with hyperkalemia, but probably safe is what I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal, do you agree? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So we we should we should consider it uh, when, if we're in that situation. So Charlie, at, at your esteemed institution, uh, are you using lactated ringers if you want a so-called balanced solution, or or is plasma light available? And do you have any experience using that? Yeah. So so I'm at, at my my esteemed institution is the the San Francisco VA just to reorient people, which is a fantastic place to work and I love it and and whatnot. Um, but as all VAs are 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 want to do, um, I, I'm not sure. So I I would have to back back up a little bit. Um, since smart uh, smart ED and 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 um, the salt trial came out, I have certainly uh, switched um, with from normal saline to LR more frequently. So I have not actually gone down the, um, uh, the Hartman's or the plasma light pathway. So I haven't begged that question of the VA at this point in time, but knowing, uh, my institution at this point, my guess is I'm again, going to get a phone call saying, why exactly are you going to be using that? Uh, if we've got LR in our back pocket. Yeah. Anybody, uh, Stuart, are you using plasma light? No, I don't use it. It's too expensive comparatively. When I was at Stewart's Institution, I did a uh, IV fluid tasting party. And someone <laughs> and we tasted we tasted lactated ringers, and someone asked asked uh, what does Hartman or no what does plasma lights taste like? And another one of the interns <laughs> said it tastes like money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, this is uh, a good. That's true. You're bringing up a good point, though. Pascal, when you were researching this, did you come across like the prices for saline versus lactated ringers, Hartman's, or plasma light? I I didn't look into that. I do know though that the price of lactated ringers and saline is pretty similar. Um, I I am sorry, I can look it up. Oh, that's okay. Well, that's what we have Stewart for. Stewart is like uh, right. Stewart can. Stewart's probably already halfway there. Uh, <laughs> Stewart, maybe we can swing back to that, and uh, we'll go to the second sure. part. Paul, I think we have a little bit more to the case here. Yeah, I think as is our way, we're slowly killing the patient, which feels right. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're having this debate, uh, poor Mister William is sitting in the um, emergency department and seems like he's ICU bound. So he's actually becoming increasingly tachycardic and tachypnic and hypoxic, and his pressures are starting to get soft. Um, so as, as the internal medicine debate goes on, uh, we decide the patient's probably going to end up going to the ICU, probably the safest place for him while we're debating his uh, fluid repletion. Um, so Pascal, I, I guess we've touched on this a little bit, but it might be worth sort of talking about some more recent evidence that's come out. But why can't I just do what I've been taught for my entire life and just use normal saline for this patient? Like, what, uh, is, what are the downsides? We sort of talked about comparability, yeah. but what are the specific concerns that come along with it? So... 
I mean, you can use normal saline. The patients will probably be like the blood pressure will improve, the tachycardia might improve. Um, but there are some concerns with giving normal saline. And I think the big um, two concerns are the development of metabolic acidosis and the hyperchloremia that can happen with um, normal saline. Um, so without going into too much details about the metabolic acidosis, but one thing that um, everyone who's listening should know is it's not a dilutional acidosis as people think it is. It's actually much more complex than that. And it's related to the concentration of cations and anions in the plasma. But basically giving normal saline does lead to this um, non-GAP metabolic acidosis, which then you can imagine like all the complications of metabolic acidosis that we know of will then eventually happen, including worsening inflammation, worsening coagulopathy, um, just like lower um, lower immune arterial pressures in sick patients. So um, there's that. I think the other concern is... <laughs> anyone want to comment? Um, I think the other concern is the development of hyperchloremia. And... Um, that's um, that's pretty interesting um, because looking at renal physiology, the macula densa, which is um, in the distal tubule of the kidney, is actually a chloride sensor. So you're giving patients normal saline, which contains 154 milliequivalents per liter of chloride, when normal plasma should be like around one, contains around 110 milliequivalents per liter of chloride. And so that's a super large amount of chloride that then gets picked up by the macula densa. The macula densa then releases all these vasoconstrictors to the afferent arterioles selling them, you need to constrict. Um, we're going to decrease the GFR. This patient is losing a lot of fluid with a lot of like chloride and sodium. And so um, this defense mode just starts, and it, what it results in is a decrease in GFR and acute kidney injury. Um, so I think there's that part, um, but there's also more stuff that can happen from the hyperchloremia, including like increased angiotensin, which then leads to more vasoconstriction, increasing in uh, thromboxin release, which then leads to like also more vasoconstriction and Actually, um, if you look at kidneys, um, like an MRI of kidneys in real time, where normal saline is being administered, there's actually um, a decrease in cortical perfusion, all pointing to this chloride actually being harmful to kidney perfusion um, in general. One of the important things to recognize when you think about the physiology of the kidney is that the GFR is insanely high compared to the plasma volume. You've got a, G, a normal GFR is 100 cc's per minute, and we only have three liters of plasma. That means in 30 minutes of filtration, we're going to filter all the plasma. And so the the disaster scenario that the kidney has to avoid is it can never have filtration without reabsorption. We know that the kidney reabsorbs you know, 98, 99% of everything that is filtered, and that's essential for survival. And if we don't do that, we're going to literally pee ourselves to death within an hour. And so the critical fact, the part that's hardwired into the kidney, the thing that allows us to have this very, very high GFR compared to plasma volume is the fact that at the end of the thick ascending limb, after the loop, after the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle, there's this macula densa and it's got this chloride detector. And if it detects increased chloride, that indicates to the kidney that we've had a failure to reabsorb. 
And that's a situation that is untenable. And the solution to that problem, if any tubule, any one of the tubules, the million you know, nephrons that you have, if any one of them fails to reabsorb adequate chloride and you get this excess chloride there, it'll shut down that glomeruli by shutting, by constricting the afferent arterial, just like Pascal was saying. And so the normal saline with this abnormally high chloride concentration, it accidentally triggers this macula densa chloride detector and will shut down the glomerulus. And we've seen this in a number of different experimental models that have looked at this. Giving this very high chloride dose lowers that GFR in a kind of like totally counterintuitive way. You'd think that giving saline would be something that would increase GFR. Oh, we're giving a big sodium load. But what we see counterintuitively is no, it actually slows it down. And we believe it's because it trips this chloride detector. Pascal, how does this play out clinically? Because I think a lot of the stuff you're talking about, it's it's mostly, we see these things happening physiologically, but how does this relate to endpoints? And that's where the, it's the SMART and the SALT ED trial or the SALTED trial. So how did those kind of guide our thinking on this? Yeah, so um, these trials happened after like a long history of really observational studies describing this um, like the negative outcomes of higher mortality or higher need for renal replacement therapy um, in patients who had received saline as compared to those who had received um, balanced crystalloids. And then last year, we had these two big trials, the SALT-ED and the SMART trials that were published in the New England Journal. Again, asking the same questions, um, the SALT-ED trial included patients in the emergency department, whereas the SMART trial including patients in the ICU. And... Um, Without like the outcomes of both studies were what's called the make 30. And that's a composite outcome. So uh, I know. So make 30 stands for major adverse kidney events within 30 days. And it's a composite of death, new renal replacement therapy or persistent renal dysfunction at hospital discharge or at 30 days since admission. And um, if you look at the outcomes of um, both studies, so starting with the SALT-ED studies, so patients who had arrived to the ED and received um, saline had uh, 5.6% of having the MIG-30. The patients who had received balanced crystalloids had a 4.7% of having the MIG-30. So 4.7% versus 5.6%. It was statistically significant, but all right, I'm not sure if I can make a great conclusion out of this. The SMART trial, similarly, um, patients who had received saline had a make, a make 30 of 15.4%. Those who had received balanced crystalloids had a make 30 of 14.3%. Again, uh, statistically significant, but a, a difference of 1%, does that make you change your practice? Um, I'm not sure. Right. So in both these trials, there was a number needed to treat of 100 patients right. to get one reduction right. in this make 30 outcome, which is a outcome that we had uh, not previously been familiar with. But for an innocuous decision about choosing which IV fluid to go with, would you rather have the one that had a 1% lower risk of uh, a kidney adverse kidney outcome or not? 
Joel, I like how you put that into perspective. The you know the NNT is such a great way for us to sort of like translate um, a lot of these trial outcomes into something the way we could think about it on a day to day basis. And you know, at a hundred seems like a lot, but if you sort of think about a practicing hospitalist or an ER doc who sees fifteen to twenty patients in a day, um, and granted they're not all going to sort of require fluid resuscitation. Um, you know, you could see how you could get to those numbers pretty quickly and whether or not you're actually buying into the idea of make as being a true and reliable sort of outcome. Um, those, that's not a trivial number to sort of think about. Stuart, it looks like you found the price list. That's right. I've got your price list for you. So I, I put it up there. Uh, so lactated ringers are a little bit more expensive than normal saline by about $2 or so per unit price. Um, Interestingly, the half normal saline is nearly double the price of normal saline. The cheapest fluid that I had was normal saline, um, probably because of quantity created, made, whatever produced. The most ex- expensive were plasma light. Yeah. By a factor of like three to four. To right. One. So that was in the 25 to $36 yeah. range. That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. So based on these trials, uh, I, I I think we should move on to some of the other topics here, and maybe maybe we can get some closing. Uh, we'll go around the horn here. Uh, so Charlie, you've told us a little bit. So so what were these trials practice changing for you? And are you are you sort of like, you know, if your trainees start someone on normal normal saline, are you feeling strongly enough that you're going to tell them to stop? You know, hang a different bag. Yeah, I I. Do. I'm not sure if I'm going to use the word practice changing, more like practice transitioning at mm-hmm. this point in time, <laughs> um, mainly because I think, you know, most of us physicians, we're, we're kind of wusses when it comes to sort of changing our our old school practice. So I've certainly um, taken it into account and it certainly has um, augmented my decisions. Um, and I have and I have called out my trainees at times sort of saying, why did you choose to use that sort of um, resuscitation fluid? Um, and should we be considering um, alternatives at this point? My guess is in a couple of years, I'll, I will probably have become a convert at some point. Pascal? Um, I think I would still use, uh, well, I, I think I will still use normal saline and or LR in someone who's otherwise healthy and young. But I think if I have a patient with baseline kidney dysfunction or AKI, I will go with LR after these studies that describes like most of the patients that I'm admitting <laughs> <to the hospital. laughs> yeah. okay young healthy probably not admitted <laughs> Joel I, I'm definitely on team balance solution I'm going with LR in just about any time that I get the opportunity to choose the IV fluid I think it's important to point out the time when you don't choose LR so if you have a patient with metabolic alkalosis so especially if after a lot of vomiting or with um, previous uh, overzealous use of the diuretics, you want to give them that chloride. They thrive on that chloride, and normal saline is the, cho- is the uh, fluid that you should be choosing in that situation. Outside point. of that, at, outside of that, I'm on uh, I'm on Team LR. Can you can you explain that? I I don't know that I follow. Why is the why do they thrive on the chloride if they're if like let's say their their bicarb is uh, like thirty five or thirty five or forty or something. Right. So, uh, so the most common causes of metabolic alkalosis are going to be uh, vomiting and diuretics. And in both of those situations, they have chloride depletion that is driving a lot of their metabolic alkalosis and replacing that uh, fixes them. And you can do that uh, 
giving card in a lot of different ways. One of my uh, moves always is to be real aggressive with the potassium replacement because if you give them potassium chloride, you're giving them a lot of chloride and that'll correct a lot of the metabolic alkalosis. But if you're in a situation where you can give them normal saline, that'll be the fastest way to uh, restore their metabolic, uh, treat their metabolic alkalosis. Okay. And as we were talking about before, there there are a couple kind of larger trials, I think randomized double-blinded trials coming out on this topic. So I don't think we've heard the last of this, but I think we've definitely uh, done a pretty thorough job talking about it. Do- Dr. Williams, Dr. Brigham, you guys care- have any closing comments before we move on? I, my Whatever trainees have actually been ahead of the curve. Uh, it's it's I'm at the situation where they're like, so we started LR and I'm kind of in a, well, like, oh, well, that's good then. Like, so it's, <laughs> usually, I mean, I don't have to make the decision anyway. It's already, that, that ship has sailed, but they... They seem to be making sort of, they seem to actually have read the trials and been mindful about their fluid selection, fluid repletion choices, um, even before I did. So good for them, I guess is what I'm saying. Stuart? Yeah. So typically lactated ringers is what I use as a resuscitation fluid, because that's the way that I typically use, use fluids. I don't use a lot of maintenance fluids. Um, and I don't, uh, have a lot of patients that are requiring a ton of uh, chloride, but I, Nevertheless, I'll say I can't wait to find my first patient that has a benign elevated lactate because they have cirrhosis and someone gave them a bunch of LR. <laughs> <laughs> At least you know the answer then. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably have trouble convincing people that, that that's the case. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain whole. (laughs) Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Thank you. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review. Please review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Justin Burke, and as always, to our social social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next next time, until next time, I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I, I often wonder what it's like to be in your head, Stuart. It's uh, Ugh, it's, it's always horrible. interesting. To watch from it's the horrible. outside is interesting. Uh, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Speak behind the curtain. He's recording in total darkness now. It's completely unclear <laughs> to the rest of us. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you, and good night. <laughs> good night. <laughs> you can see my eyes. I know, but it's just like you go to your, like, the the you like turn the the camera off for a while and then you come back and it's like complete darkness and like once in a while it's like um sin city like we just see your glasses <laughs> glaring like uh you know what's his name uh from sin city i can't the remember Frank comic yeah. yeah that's perfect <laughs> what's his name again i, I forgot it's uh, like the album cover of bohemian rhapsody for uh <laughs> people on queen <laughs>
<laughs> Probably involves a microphone and some headphones, I would imagine. So, Pascal, Charlie, this is your first episode with us. We've <laughs> I love it. This is this is sausage being made right here. We've we've recorded over 140 episodes at this point. Stuart's been on the vast majority of them, and uh it still seems every time like Simple things like mute, un- muted, or not muted are are still. It still comes up. Well, there were you ask people who've been married for a really Skype. long time, like, "What's your secret? How do you keep it fresh?" And this is yeah. the way. It's just like it's new every single time we do it. Just every episode is like the very first one. It's, it's magic. Oh, I love it. 